All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Truth Warrior. My name is David Whitehead, and I'm very thrilled to be able to have this conversation with the great Dr. Richard Souter. He is the author of a book that uh, really made me think deeply, no pun intended, about what's going on in our world, uh, what's going on with our corrupt governments, this black budget that's been going on for a long time in America and no doubt here in Canada where I live. And so many of these subjects that many of you may have heard about, but maybe didn't realize that there is a lot of deep research that you can get into to learn more about it. And we're talking about the deep underground, the underground world, and uh, so many other subjects that Dr. Souter covers. And so I'm really glad to be here. And Richard, uh, just wanted to say really quickly, you and I had a conversation, I want to say it was around 2009 or 2010. And it went out on uh, one of the online radio networks I was with at the time, and I lost the archive of that interview. And I was I was very upset about it because it was such a great show. And uh, I, I was worried that you had no longer been doing interviews and you weren't doing any work. And it was actually one of my followers that said, hey, here's I found the website and he's still doing a blog and here's the email. And I I reached out and here we are, and I'm absolutely thrilled. So it's an honor to be able to speak with you again. Maybe just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what you've been up to over the past few years. You've been working on your blog um, and just give a little introduction to your work, if you wouldn't mind. David, well, thank you. I've, I've been in Ecuador in South America for the last 13 years. I hadn't done any interviews for about seven or eight years for a variety of reasons, mostly because I had a very poor internet connection and I didn't always have it. And also I had a series of really junky uh, laptop computers that just did not have the RAM to do interviews. So I was off the air for a long time. I did continue with my blog all along. I have been through the ringer. I've almost died on three separate occasions over the last 10 years. But you know, life is for the living and I'm still here. And isn't it grand that we're having this conversation? Now you talked about going deeply into uh, the subject matter. And as you're alluding uh, to, of course, there is a governmental structure or or what would we call it? Um, I don't even know the word for uh, a shadowy governmental structure that we call the deep state. Right. Uh, there's a global deep state and then most nations, perhaps every so-called country has its own deep state, large or small. In the case of the United States, and I believe also in the case of Canada, the deep state has a physical component. In other words, it literally is a deep state that holds forth in underground subterranean facilities, uh, meeting places, chambers, tunnels, and uh, bases. And this can also be undersea as well, deep undersea, well down in the bedrock beneath the seafloor or beneath uh, any large body of water, such as the so-called Great Lakes. Lake Erie, for example, uh, which is between the United States in Canada or Lake, Lake Huron or Lake Superior, etc. 
Right. Yeah, this is I'm already fascinated just listening to you. And I just want to first off, thank you, Richard, because I know the kind of slings and arrows you've taken uh, for doing this work. And it's shocking to me because your research from all the interviews I remember watching and the presentations you've done. And I have your book here, A Hidden in Plain Sight Beyond the X-Files. And I just love this book. Uh, I want to recommend people get it. You can get it on Amazon. And um, I'd rather they order through my website from my publisher directly. Okay, let them know exactly where they can go. Actually, yeah, let's do that right now. What's the best website and way they can get your book? The only website I have right now is Event Horizon Chronicle dot blogspot dot com. That's Event Horizon Chronicle dot blogspot dot com. And perhaps you'll be able to put up a link to that, David, on on your website. Absolutely. And I'll put it below this interview for everybody listening. So you can just go directly. And I think that's order the books right off the site. I actually have three. The one you just mentioned, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files, came out in 2010, just before I left the United States. But all the information in there is is as valid as the day it was written, Uh, perhaps more so with the passage of the years. If information is true, it doesn't stop being true as the years go by. Mm. Truth is truth. Um, I've never needed to modify my books because they're based on solid documentary research. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel the same as I was going through it because I had recently done a show last week on my uh, just featuring the book and going through some of your presentations just because I found it so valuable. And I feel like you brought a lot of sanity and rationality to this movement when you presented. It wasn't just a bunch of, oh, I channeled this information from this person or I heard this eight pan from this person. It was and you were very always very honest about, hey, this is the information I was able to collect most of it from the public record. Um, And, you know, you can look at it for yourself. It's something people can validate to just get us just to get an idea of how big this is and how big it possibly could be. Well, that's right, right, David. And and what you said earlier was very apropos. I have suffered a lot of slings and arrows from people over the years. I have received some extremely nasty email. Um, some of it so nasty that if I knew who was who was sending, and I knew of a competent legal jurisdiction to prosecute, I would bring criminal charges against some of these people for uh, threatening me. But they use aliases in some cases, they use anonymous proxies. And in any event, I don't know if there's any competent court, whether in Ecuador or the United States or anywhere else, to try these types of cases because even were I able to present hard hard evidence because the uh, corruption runs so deep on this world, and I mean that literally, we're dealing with uh, deep evil, and I have no question that a lot of this evil is being projected from, generated from, or coming out of deep underground facilities. And by the way, I'm in Quito, Ecuador, where there certainly are uh, ancient underground tunnels and chambers beneath the city itself and beneath at least a couple of the uh, hills that that are in the within the city limits and 
it's a fool's errand trying to find out who built these tunnels, when they were built, what they were used for, or even to go in them. Nowadays, the uh, access to them is blocked off by the uh, various units of the Catholic Church, <clears throat> pardon me, and various levels of government. And by the way, Quito is not the only city around the world to have a, a secret network of underground tunnels. There are many cities, Salt Lake City is one in the United States, Washington, D.C., uh, New York City, Paris, London, uh, Lima, Peru, Peru. There are many cities around the world with a network of tunnels beneath them, both ancient tunnels going back uh, centuries, hundreds of years, or in some cases, even thousands of years, and also a network of modern, more high-tech tunnels. And that's just to say that our, our physical reality is undergirt by uh, an unseen but also physical reality that most human beings do not have ready access to, or in many cases, any access. And nefarious activities do take place in these tunnels and underground uh, bases and meeting areas. And I'm prepared to believe that in some cases, these are joint extraterrestrial human, extraterrestrial being human terrestrial human being facilities up to no good. I would agree with you on that. And I'm it's, it, it, already there's so many fascinating points you've brought up. And this is why I love these kind of conversations, because what I'm trying to do on this show, Richard, is help open people's minds. Well, let's to let David, just how deep this really does. David, go. Let's open up. Let's open up a. Uh, an avenue of exploration that I think must be happening. Sure. That is, there are in the aggregate millions of missing people on this planet. We don't know how many millions. I'll say that here in Ecuador, I constantly see missing persons flyers on bus stops and walls, utility posts and um, storefronts, that kind of thing. I also know that the missing person problem in the United States has been going on most of my life and maybe even before. And it certainly is occurring in other countries as well. For example, in, in war battle regions where there are wars raging, as in Ukraine right now, or in Yemen, or in <clears throat> the Sudan, where there's a civil conflict in recent weeks, in the chaos of warfare, where you have armies rampaging across the landscape and, and thousands, in some cases, even hundreds of thousands or millions of people fleeing for their lives. And all of that confusion and panic and violence, people go missing. People right. get abducted. People get enslaved. People get shanghaied into all kinds of things. Some people get young men especially, but not only young men, get shanghaied into one or the other of the armies or paramilitary forces and are sent to the front as cannon fodder. But as all of that is going on, what happens to that young man's wife and children without him around to provide for them or protect them? In many cases, we don't know. They are left to fend for themselves under very 
<clears throat> very onerous, difficult circumstances. And I just described millions of people here in South America, where we have uh, terrific human migration uh, from Venezuela, from Ecuador, from Colombia, from Central America. People are on the move by the millions of <clears throat> millions and even young children unaccompanied. And I'm telling you that a lot of them just fall to the cracks. Now, here in Ecuador, for example, there was an article in, newspa in a newspaper maybe a half a year ago that said that over the last five years, more than 3,000, no, I believe it was something like, um, yes, 2,500 or 3,000 children have gone missing. And that's just young children see. But I see missing person flyers for uh, adolescents, for young people, even for elderly people 80 years old with uh, Alzheimer's. They just vanish into third thin air. So this is happening in many countries. Where do these people go? I think, David, there are three possibilities that have come up in my research. There may be more. But these are the three that I've run across and I believe are probably happening. Uh, one, and there may be four actually, one, people, especially young people or children in good health, are being culled for, to be killed for organ harvesting. And I mean just everything would be harvested. Their eyes, their, their ears, their livers, kidneys, hearts, spleens, sexual organs, their skin, uh, bones, a pretty young girl with nice hair, her hair. Uh, you, you know you can hell, sell hair uh, for hundreds of dollars, kidneys and hearts and livers and all of that kind of lungs for hundreds of thousands of dollars. A, a young person in good health, you can part them out and then the coup de grace is you siphon all their blood out and then it's done you see and the remains you just discard through a meat grinder or something and and that's it that's happening uh, it's it's just cruel it's brutal it's savage uh, that's happening there is a, a massive organ trade human organ trade on this planet everything from bone to skin sexual organs faces the face of a pretty young girl what is that what does that bring on the international market? Some middle-aged hag who wants a, a nice young face. I'm telling you, David, it happens. And that's the first thing. The second thing is slavery. Mm. Doing all kinds of things. Any kind of dangerous or illegal work you can think of. Um, <clears throat> including, well, of course, there's the uh, sex trade. But also, I'm talking about physical dangerous work in anything. It could be an illegal mining, and there's a lot of illegal mining all over this world. It could be an agricultural, dangerous agricultural work, and there's a lot of that. Uh, any type of camp where you take into a rural area and your labor, forced labor, is taken advantage of, and then you either die or are killed because the work is so dangerous, or you get injured and they just take you off in the woods somewhere 
and put you, a bullet in your brain and leave you for the wild animals to eat. And in a week or two, there's little or no evidence of you ever having existed. I'm telling you that happens. There's also quite a lot of slavery within the developed countries in, in recent months. There have been articles in the main, even in the mainstream news media in the United States about various industries using young children, children so-called illegal migrants, you know, 10 years old in dangerous occupations, working long hours. Who's checking on that? Not the police, not the industry itself. The industry is getting basically free labor for a bed and some food, and then they just work these children. It's like really hard. It's vicious. It's like something out of Dickensian England, you know, in the, in the 19th century, the kind of novel that Charles Dickens was writing, Oliver Twist, for example. This goes on to the to the very this very day. <clears throat> People think, oh well, we're two centuries, three centuries advanced from that. Oh no, uh, the conditions for hundreds of millions of people on this planet are just as viciously brutal now, if not more so than they were two or three hundred years ago. And then I think uh, there's a good portion of these people who are. Uh, tortured and killed in satanic sacrifices, David. Mm. Satanism, Satanism and uh, demonic cults are widespread on this world. They're, they're very secretive, they're very compartmentalized, they're very evil. And from everything that I'm finding out in recent years, they do kill people. There is a, a traffic in blood, for example, which I alluded to you know, five minutes ago, uh, blood drinking is a thing in these demonic satanic cults and also in certain um, so-called high society realms and in, in politics and entertainment and so forth. Uh, adrenochrome is a commodity which is derived from human blood, uh, from children, from young people, really from almost anyone. And it is drunk. I don't I don't drink it. I don't believe I know anyone who does. But then who who would publicly admit to that now? And then the fourth thing is. Uh, I've been running across references to this for a long time, but it seems that there are extraterrestrial factions, whether human or non-human, who do kidnap large numbers of humans of all kinds of all races, all ethnicities, both genders, young and old, and take them off planet. Evidently, there is connivance between police agencies and military agencies uh, and governments all over the world in all of this, because you can't have such large numbers of people disappearing by the thousands and even millions and government agencies, military and police agencies not know anything about it. It's simply not possible, especially with the kind of uh, surveillance technology that is in use today. And even in a poor country like Ecuador in South America, there are a lot of surveillance cameras, there are license plate readers and so forth. Uh, it's it's hard to see how 
these large numbers of people just vanish without modern day technology knowing anything about it. Of course, modern day technology as employed in everywhere, restaurants, hospitals, bus stations, train stations, airports, highways, shopping centers, shopping malls, everywhere you go. Uh, Stoplights, intersections have cameras and license plate readers. So clearly the police agencies and military agencies and other government agencies like uh, human services, family services, child service, child protection services. Many agencies are in on this, David, which is another way of saying that the deep state is, um, well, it's a deep M-I-N-D-F-U-C-K, among other things. Now, (laughs) following out, oh, I'm very serious. We're in the mother of all mind control programs, David. It's global in scope and it's clamping down even harder. Free your mind if you can, because it's not enough to just free your body. You may say, well, I'm walking around free. I'm not in the handcuffs. No, your mind is a thing. If your mind is in a headlock, so to speak, you're not free. And I just described easily hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. Now, following out this line of thought of the missing people, I am all the way back to the days of um, <clears throat> um, what's her name? Tilton. I forget her first name. Um, Carla Tilton, I think, maybe. Um, who came out with the stories about the Dulce, Dulce underground base back in the 1980s. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, she didn't say that it was at Dulce. She said she was told the name of the base was Dulce. Dulce simply means sweet in Spanish. So whoever named the base named it the sweet base. Well, I guess maybe depends on who you are because she described the base where many human beings were kept in captivity in cages. Now I believe this goes on. There may be a captive human breeding population underground in these bases. Uh, I, from everything I've been told and that I've read, and I've talked to a lot of people and I've read a lot of things, including hard government documentation, all of, all of it together leads me to believe that there certainly are human beings being held underground under conditions that would amount to torture in cages, in, in, in prisons, uh, unable to leave or escape, held against their will. The only thing that I don't know is how many. I'm increasingly prepared to believe that it could be a great many people. You see, there could be. And during the um, transatlantic African slave trade in, in past centuries, it ended in the 19th century, but it went on for like 300 years. There were slaveholding facilities on the west coast of Africa, places like Senegal and um, I think uh, Guinea and Nigeria, places like that. And there were holding pens, uh, what amount of prisons where hundreds or even thousands of slaves would be held. And then uh, slave ships would come there to the coast 
and load up a cargo of hundreds of slaves and then sail across the Atlantic Ocean, whether to the East Coast of North America, to the Caribbean, to Central America, or to South America. And that went on for two or 300 years. Now, I'm, I'm wondering, I can't provide you hard proof, but I'm wondering if the same thing isn't going on today uh, with these many missing people, if they perhaps aren't being held in secret facilities underground and off planet slavers come and say, yeah, we'll take uh, 10 of those and 300 of those. And uh, you got any 14 year old Latinos and we need, yeah, yeah, crazy sounds. We need 80, 80, 85 year old Alzheimer's victims who don't even know whether, whether they're awake or asleep. And they load them all up. And how do they pay? I don't know, with gold or maybe with some exotic off planet technology. You see, I think this is going on, David. I'm, I'm not so much speculating here as telling you what my best guesstimate is or the sum total of all the evidence at my disposal, anecdotal, hard evidence, things I've read, channeled information in some cases, testimony of people who alleged to have been in some of these underground facilities and that sort of thing. Wow, just an incredible picture. And uh, there's nothing in there that I don't also feel myself uh, is from what I've seen and what I've looked at the people I've spoken to. I've also been covering on my show. I've been interviewing certain victims of the human trafficking world. Um, there's some very what interesting does that say? Yes. Yeah. And it's 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 just incredible how connected everything is. And I think does that's what, even happens. what they say connect with what I've just said. Well, it connects it. It connects in on certain levels where, for example, I interviewed this uh, woman who lives in Canada and she had been trafficked. She was actually she told me she was born into a family that was called the family. And at a very young age, she was immediately uh, put into this sort of grooming program. Um, and then she was put right into the sex trade industry side of things and told me that it wasn't just a bunch of local biker gangs and some mobs or whatever. It was run in elite circles that she says has international connections and that they work underground. And she was trafficked across the Canadian and American border. Um, she tried for 20 years to get Canadian uh, policing and intelligence services or even FBI in America to look in, investigate and try to even locate her son because she had a son through the process of being in the sex trade industry. And she found out later that her son was actually taken from her and brought into that industry and later became himself a human trafficker. And it's just a horrible story uh, from this this amazing woman who I'm just so, you know, glad she had the bravery to come out. And there's more and more of these. Oh, yes, coming there, there are many. Now, you know? When she was taken underground, what kind of underground facilities was she taken in? Well, she didn't get into this particular interview. She didn't talk about it in terms of an underground facility, per se. She just yes. mentioned it on the level of similar to at the American southern border, for example. They have a lot of these underground tunnel systems that they can yes. use. She also mentioned the shipping containers, like the shipping industry, yes. um, how they they work. Uh, there's like a port in Vancouver 
in British yes. Columbia that goes back and forth. Um, and I've got corroboration on that whole thing from former FBI director Ted Gunderson, who spoke about that back in the 90s. Yes. And um, so what I what I find is it, it's like these little pieces that you then compare to other testimony where I have spoken to people who have also claimed, yes, I was brought into some kind of underground facility that had military people walking around in it. And there were all kinds of horrible things done to me. Like I've spoken to those people as well. So it's yes. kind of a matter of comparing notes with everybody for you to get the the whole picture that you've just described. Well, yes, the uh, as I said, as some of your um, witnesses have, have mentioned in your other interviews, the, the police and military agencies are involved. I'm not saying every single police man or police woman is involved or every single uh, soldier, but at an institutional levels, level, there are certainly police and military factions involved and it's a major, the, the human trafficking industry and all of its ramifications, we've mentioned some, and there must be even more that have never occurred to us. Uh, for example, um, one that you do run across and you have is uh, breeding children off the grid. They're never entered into the system, so they're, um, they're just available to be done with as whoever runs these human trafficking networks um, want to do. And in most cases, the vast majority of cases, that's going to be very unpleasant. Now, <clears throat> we don't know the numbers, but they have to run into the millions in the aggregate. We're talking about a, a parallel reality, a parallel society, uh, a parallel human um, society, compartmentalized society on this planet that interfaces with the espionage agencies, intelligence agencies, police agencies, uh, military agencies, and, and highest levels of government, as you just observed. Now, let me mention something that I've seen here in, in Quito many times, including in, in just within the last couple of weeks. These are large unmarked trucks, either gray in color or green in color, or a very dark green, um, which have no markings, no numbers, no license plates. In other words, there's no lettering or, or name or any kind of identification word on any of these trucks, no license plates, no numbers or letters, not even something like 14G34H, not even something like nothing. And they're always escorted in front and in back by uh, military style sort of Humvee sort of vehicles painted with military camouflage, brown, tan, green splotches, you know. Um, and inside of these accompanying vehicles are heavily armed men with bulletproof vests, military type helmets, and automatic rifles. They'll just be jammed in into these vehicles in front and behind. Usually there's just one of these trucks. Uh, about two weeks ago, I saw two. They're, they're always sirens, police sirens accompanying them, you know. Uh, you can hear them coming before you see these, these motorcades. And then you see the, the armed escort in front and behind. 
and most recently I saw two of these trucks, right? One was a large dark green truck. The other was a large uh, just um, plain gray truck, plain gray metal, right? No markings. The escort vehicles do not have any words or letters or numbers on them or license plate numbers. In other words, this is an operation that is extra governmental. All governments uh, that I'm familiar with on this in the world issue license plate numbers. Even the United Nations stencils United Nations or UN on the side of its vehicles and has some kind of license plate. Um, certainly national governments do, provincial, provincial governments do, and, and state governments do all over the world. But this is an anomaly for me. So these motorcades uh, evidently are not from any government. Is that not interesting, David? And that is very interesting. Yeah. As to what is carried in these trucks, the trucks are always under heavy armed guard in front and behind. Guys in guys dressed to kill. I mean, guards dressed to kill. Just from what I see, you know, they're they are paramilitaries. Uh, who they're working for? Who pays them? I couldn't tell you. I've sometimes have been rather close on the sidewalk when they've gone by and I don't see any patches on their uniforms. They're just generic military style uniforms and generic military style escort vehicles and ge large generic unmarked plane trucks. None of this with license plate numbers. And I'm guessing I can think of a few possibilities. Cocaine. Cocaine is a viable commodity and it's trafficked in industrial commodities on this planet. Ecuador is one of the major cocaine exporting countries in the world. So cocaine or pallets of shrink wrapped $100 bills to pay off corrupt politicians, for example, um, are there very uh, VIP, you know, very important persons or very important entities uh, that need to be, be ferried hither and thither and under uh, great security, paramilitary security, but who dare not be publicly seen. And if so, who might be those people or those entities? And where would they be coming from and or going to? Uh, are there high value human captives in those trucks that are being ferried from one place to another? Captive ETs? You know, there's, there's, uh, there are, um, I don't know what you would call them, catch and grab operations. These have been going on for my whole life and before where there are very secretive X-file type units that whenever whenever a UFO crashes or is brought down or or ETs are detected somewhere, there are go teams that are heavily armed go teams that are sent out uh, to capture and corral these beings if possible and bring them in. Uh, does that happen in Ecuador? Maybe. Uh, and then <clears throat> Gold, gold. There's a 
Ecuador is like the entire western um, part of the Americas, all the way from Alaska down through western Canada, you know, the Yukon, uh, British Columbia, down through, I don't know, Washington State, Oregon, California, down through Mexico, the mountains in Mexico, through Central America, and down into the Andes in South America. The whole western, mountainous western region of the Americas, from Alaska down to Tierra del Fuego, down in southern Chile and, and Argentina, it's full of gold. I mean, just billions and billions and billions of dollars full of gold. There was the, uh, you know, Yukon gold rush, the Klondike, the California gold rush, and so forth. And Ecuador is no exception. The Spanish brought who knows how many thousands of tons of gold out of Ecuador in their galleons. They had two, two um, armadas every year coming up the west coast of South America from from Chile, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, with thousands of tons of, of gold and, and, and diamonds, emeralds, also silver. And they would take those tons and tons of viable metals and jewels on mule pack trains over the mountains and, and Panama. And then there would be another waiting fleet of galleons, scores of galleons. And, and twice a year, they would do that and then take all of that wealth across the Atlantic to Europe. So, of course, they didn't get everything. The technology today is more powerful and there's still a lot of gold in the rivers and mountains in Ecuador. And <clears throat> so, since Ecuador is heavily indebted to the IMF, the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, to the Chinese, to the United States, to the French, etc. <clears throat> Are they paying people off with bootleg gold, off the books gold? Is there a quid pro quo? You know, we can't pay you, and you know that we can't pay you, but we do have gold, so we will give you X number of tons of gold. Uh, or is is that gold perhaps going off planet? My understanding from some of my reading is that gold, terrestrial gold, is a valued commodity off planet. Uh, how much of the illegal mining that's happening in Ecuador is being done indirectly for off planet interests that take collection of the gold in great secrecy because it's off the books? What kind of what kind of deals are done getting back to the secret tunnels under Quito again? What happens in those tunnels? Who or what is down in those tunnels? And why the great secrecy surrounding them? I don't know. I've seen world leaders here, David, in this poor little country. And Ecuador is a small country and it is poor and heavily indebted. I, I saw Xi Jinping came here. I saw his motorcade. I could have really? practically reached out and touched his his limousine. Um, the the president of of Germany was here a few years ago. Not the chancellor, but the president. And they blocked off the downtown area around the presidential palace. You couldn't get within a block of the place. They put down razor wire. Why? Um, 
Ahmadinejad, right? President Ahmadinejad of Iran came here. This was more than 10 years ago. Why? Why, why is he coming here to do what? In this tiny little country in the Andes. Well, there are virtually no ties between Iran and Ecuador. Very, very weak ties. So why would he take time out of his busy schedule to come here? Uh, the Pope, the current Pope, who's, who's from Argentina, made his first visit to Ecuador. He came right here to Quito uh, within a matter of a couple of three weeks of, of taking office. You would think he would go back home to Argentina, you know, a returning son. No. <coughs> Pardon me. His first visit was to Quito. He flew right here to Quito, Ecuador. And then he held a mass right downtown in one of the old, you know, 200-year-old colonial cathedrals downtown. Why did he come here? I saw his mobile that went right by the corner where I was living at that time. A police helicopter whirling overhead. Um, his, his Swiss guards, the equivalent of the Secret Service for the United States president. His Swiss guards clinging to his mobile with bulges under their armpits, very squinty-eyed, beady-eyed, looking at everyone lining the sidewalk and security in front, you know, a whole pile of police in front, a whole pile of cops in back. And I got to believe there are other things these people do here in Quito other than just come uh, to have the photograph taken and uh, ride around town in their motorcades. Well, exactly. And I think that what you've broken down here already is just opening up this door for people to explore this more because I think we've seen in say in the movement that I'm in of people that have been questioning the status quo and questioning certain of historical events and trying to point out the corruption and the lies uh, we tend to look at things in this movement in isolation we tend to look at subjects isolated from each other thinking oh well there's something going on over here and then that's separate from this thing that's going on over here but your work is is so astounding to me because it's very big picture. It's like, OK, let's look at all of this at the same time. We've got all this okay, corruption in politics. We've got all these missing people. We've got crime uh, running the streets. We've got infiltration at the highest levels in all of our major institutions. Um, and we've got a media that is clearly not serving the industry or the uh, the interests of the people, or even just the standards of journalism from once upon a time, that's all out the window. So we're seeing, okay, then there's central control of, you know, the investment firms and the major corporations that produce all that media, and even in the pharmaceutical world, and and all and on and on. And I, I, when you put it all together, a big picture starts to emerge here, where you start to ask the question, like I did, and I know you did. What is really happening on this planet? What is this planet? And are the human beings that are in our pol political houses and who we think are running things, are they actually serving something secret, hidden and buried, literally and figuratively, that is working towards a rather anti-human agenda? And if well, that's totally, the case, who would do such a thing, right? It's totally anti-human. One of the control factions that can be identified, well, 
you can look at the control structure of this planet as an interlocking series of very powerful, very ruthless criminal mafias. I mean, some of them you can identify, like the Chinese triads, uh, the Japanese. Is it pronounced Yakuza or Yakuza? I've heard it both ways, but I, I have too. About, yeah. So, so I don't speak Japanese, but the Japanese mob, uh, Chinese triads, the the Sicilian mafia, you know, the Italian mafia, the Russian, Ukrainian, Jewish mafia, and yes, that's a thing. Um, the then you have the narco cartels like the Colombian narco cartels, the, the Mexican narco cartels, and uh, then you have the petroleum mafia. OPEC is very much a petroleum mafia. It's worth trillions and uh, heavily influences policy in, in countries and e economies all across the, country, the, the planet. You've got the gold mafia, uh, which is very powerful. Forget what people say about, you know, gold is so, so 19th century or so 15th century. Um, that's, it's ancient. Gold, gold doesn't mean anything in today's world. David, oh yes, it does. Gold is the highly treasured commodity in this day, in, this, in today's world. And major nation states accumulate as much of it as they can, especially countries like China, Russia, uh, India and so forth. Then there's the. Oh, could I just the, pause you there for a quick sec, Richard? That thought occurred to me. Yes. If if there's this clandestine uh, deep, I find it funny that it's called deep state. I, I don't know if people know the profound implications of that based on what we're talking about. But there's this deep clandestine criminal world, and there's been many films in Hollywood, and I believe that. Um, they often tell you a lot of things in certain films. Um, and there's this new film series that's out. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called John Wick. And he's basically this uh, ex-hitman for the Russian mob. And then they, you know, betray him. And then he goes after them. And it's just an action movie. But the thing that they put in there that was interesting to me is they showcased that there is indeed a whole underground criminal world that most people don't know about and they have their own currency that is not cash or visa it's gold coins so he yeah. pays everybody that he works with with gold coins that are only used in the underground criminal world and that concept people might think oh that's just some interesting hollywood imagination but i think that based on some of the data that we have and we've already brought up it could very well be that some of this gold that you're talking about they're, they could basically, and they would have to, have their own means of currency exchange uh, in the criminal world. Yes, yes, uh, that's true. Now, I agree with, with everything you said. Continuing with this, other mafias, for example, would be uh, national governments in virtually every country in the world, the so-called national government is simply the most powerful criminal mafia in that particular geographical territory right. and usually right. usually heavily armed and in in some cases nuclear armed and then you would have other mafias like the um uh, muslim brotherhood in the middle east for example or or the um mafias uh espionage agencies like the cia and the mossad and mi6 and mi5 fbi these are criminal mafias they do criminal things 
and they have a criminal code of silence. And then mafias like the um, Vatican, for example, which is very much uh, active on the world scene globally, still is very powerful. I know a lot of people sneer and say, oh, the Pope, that that sissy in a white dress that goes around, you, you know, uh, saying masses in country after country. Listen, the Pope, the College of Cardinals in the Vatican, the whole machinery of the Vatican is a very large criminal mafia and has been for centuries. I agree, um, 100%. Now, uh, do they take people out if they get in their way? Oh, yeah. They and every other mafia, they're in the killing business. They're, they're very serious. Uh, the, the Hollywood movies about these various mafias, whether it's Robert De Niro and the Italian mob or John Wick and the Russian mob or whatever, um, they're all very serious. What they have in common is great secrecy, great violence, attraction to power and wealth, and Satanism, actually. The other mafia is uh, 33rd degree Freemasonry, which, which, right. which dovetails with espionage agencies, military agencies, um, government institutions, and it's been around for centuries, at least since the 18th century and perhaps before. But using Ecuador as an example, and we could talk about the United States also in other countries, like the um, France has the uh, Priory of Zion, Zion, for example, which is their main uh, free Masonic organization. In Germany, the um, well, the Skull and Bones organization, which is another one of these free, secretive Freemasonic organizations that's very tied into the power structure in the United States and has been since almost two centuries now, is actually uh, run out of Yale University, but was is actually a chapter, the Skull and Bones 322 chapter at Yale University is actually a, an affiliated chapter of a secret society in Germany whose name evidently is not publicly known. I've never seen it mentioned anywhere. Only that the Skull and Bone Society is an adjunct or a affiliated chapter of that German society. And I would remind you that um, the Bush family has strong ties to the Skull and Bones 322 chapter, and that the Bush family, going back to the 1930s and 1940s, through Prescott Bush, had very strong ties to the Nazi party in Germany. And they were occultists, eh, those Nazis, and there was the Free oh, Society Nazis, yeah. and, and this whole the thing. SS, the SS was, in fact, a, a secret a military organization, yes, but it was also organized as a secret society along the lines of uh, 33rd degree Freemasonry or uh, the Praetorian Guard during the Roman period or of the, um, what was the other one? It was the Templars, wasn't it? They were trying to no, recreate the, the Templars. 
the Jesuits. The, right. the, the pattern, the pattern for the SS, and the SS was a, a, a definitely a, a military agency during the, during the Third Reich. It was part of the military structure, um, but a very leading influential structure. It had ties to the Annenerbach and to um, the highest levels of the Nazi party leadership. And of course, it interfaced with the Wehrmacht, but the SS was a, a military combat army, army style organization as well. But it was patterned over the jet uh, after the Jesuits. And the Jesuits, of course, are a secret society within the Catholic hierarchy, the Roman Catholic structure have been for, for centuries. And but it also also had elements of the uh, Praetorian Guard too. The Praetorian Guard was was the armed faction that was right around the Roman Emperor. And in fact, the uh, Nazi regime itself, in many ways, was patterned after a Roman imperial model. Look at all the official government buildings the Nazis constructed in the 1930s and 1940s. They were on the Roman model, you know, classical Roman style architecture. And by the way, Washington DC is also full of classic Roman style architecture. The Capitol, the Supreme Court building, the US Treasury and Mint, uh, Bureau of Printing and Graving. You go, go around Washington DC and you will see many of these agencies and departments in buildings that are explicitly ancient imperial Roman style architecture. Isn't it interesting? Washington DC and both Berlin during the Nazi period were patterned after, explicitly patterned after imperial Rome. Does the United States not have a United States Senate? Ancient, where does the word Senate come from? From Latin in ancient Rome, along with the emperor, the Senate ruled. In fact, if you go into the Senate chamber in the United States Congress and up to the, uh, the speaker's rostrum, on the wall just behind the speaker are two huge, what are fascists. They come, the, the Latin word fascist describes that, that big X that represented Roman imperial power 2000 years ago with uh, a bundle of rods bound together by leather straps with an axe head either on top or near the top. And that was a symbol of power in ancient Rome from which the word fascism design, uh, descends, or derives fascist in, or, in order, in, in other words, Roman style imperial, brutal, savage, cruel power. And that's what you see in the United States in the Senate chamber and in other places around um, official Washington, D.C., you will also see the fascists. Now you find the same thing here in Ecuador. The fascists is right on the national flag of Ecuador. Oh, really? I didn't notice, yeah. Right in the middle of the flag, underpinning everything, is a, a Roman fascist. And <clears throat> if you go to the, the middle of the world, monument here in Ecuador, which is just north of Quito. It's on the equator. Uh, 
there's a monument. You can go in and go up like six or seven levels. And then you can stand up there and look around and see for miles around. But just above the entrance where you go in on the east side, carved into the stone is a large fascist. Again. In other words, there is, speaking of the deep state, in the United States overtly, and in Ecuador overtly, you see this in official symbolism having to do with the national governments in both countries. You see the overt symbolism of the Roman, ancient Roman fascists, which raises a question as to whether the, um, how much of the power structure in today's world still has ties to ancient Rome. In other words, is the Roman Empire actually dead or did it just go underground, though not very, as did the Nazi, Nazi government at the close of World War II evidently vanished, but not so. You see the, the power structure in the United States is hybrid Nazi and that goes for NATO as well. Yeah. And the EU and all this stuff we're seeing. EU, sure, with you, the EU and NATO are just the Nazi project continued under different names. In fact, after World War II, a lot of leading Nazis, <clears throat> pardon me, a lot of leading Nazis, uh, men who are high in the power structure, whether in finance, in espionage in the military or in politics, were brought over into the government in Germany, literally. Uh, you know, Reinhard Galen, who was Adolf Hitler's uh, spy master in Central and Eastern Europe during uh, the Nazi period, after the war struck a, door, struck a deal with um, Alan Dulles and uh, brought over his entire spy apparatus complete to join with the OSS, which was the uh, United States military's wartime spy apparatus, espionage apparatus. After the war, um, those two spy organizations were joined. And don't you know that in the 1950s, Reinhard Galen, Adolf Hitler's spy master became chief of the West German spy agency. It's incredible. It's incredible to think about it. This is in kind of words, Operation Paperclip. He was German. He was the Nazi spy master during World War II. And after World War II, he was the West German spy master. So you tell me what really changed. Now, he was not the only one. Uh, many people know about Werner von Braun coming over. He was an SS officer and coming over, over and being basically the father of the United States ballistic missile, military ballistic missile program, and also the manned space program, both programs in the 1950s and up into the 1960s. Um, he, you know, he developed the Redstone rocket, the Atlas, the Saturn V rocket. He was um, an aerospace genius. He was really a top level engineer, which was why he was brought over. He did the same things 
over here for the Pentagon and for NASA that he had done for Hitler. He just continued to work, just continued doing what he had, had been doing for the previous 10 or 15 years. And there were many like him. Walter Dornberg, who was his commanding officer at Panamunda, which was the V-2 rocket base during World War II, and also in the Hartz Mountains where they assembled the V-2 rockets, he came over and, and brought, you know, whole briefcase, this whole boxes full of, of um, technical diagrams and blueprints, uh, and including the um, blueprint for the space shuttle. The, the Nazis were working all the way back in the 1930s and 40s on manned space flight. And one of the concepts was developed by Eugen and Irene Sanger. They were but they were like um, they were like uh, Werner von Braun. They were top-notch aerospace engineers. Uh, they were developing co a concept for a, a space shuttle, a manned um, space plane. Well, of course, the Nazis were militarily militarily defeated in World War II, but that program was folded over into NACA which then became NASA. And then already in, I believe, by the mid-1970s or so, uh, NASA be began putting up the late 1970s, the, the first space shuttle prototypes. And that was all Nazi engineering that was brought to completion in the United States with a delay of 30 or 40 years. That was what the Nazis were working on back in the 30s and 40s. And that's why they were brought over not only in aerospace and over, I think over a thousand were brought over technicians, engineers, and scientists who were involved with aerospace programs, uh, but also in underground base construction. The Nazis were way ahead of the United States in all kinds of engineering fields. And by, by the way, they were defeated by force of numbers. Uh, the industrial capacity of the United States simply was greater, and the United States could crank out more bombers, more fighters, et cetera, more, more ships uh, than, than the Germans could. They just ground the Germans down with numbers. But the actual engineering the Germans had was substantially in advance of what the United States had. Do you think they had it, any help? Oh, yes, I do. I think they did, and I owe extraterrestrial help, but I think the United States also did in the same period. Right. Uh, in other words, as some have observed, um, World, World War II was, among other things, also a conflict be between a number of different extraterrestrial factions. This war that we have now, and that's never stopped, this war that we are now into already already and about to go deeper into, I believe you could conceive of as World War II 2.0. There was World War II 1.0 back in the late 1930s and 1940s. And now I believe we're entering into just this another phase of World War II. In other words, World War II never entered, never, never ended, David. Now, getting back to this 
the Nazis under Project Paperclip also Project Paperclip comprised uh, the underground base experts led by Xavier Dorsch. Xavier Dorsch was worked directly under Hitler in the last couple of years of the war. Hitler, he was under Albert Speer's command and Hitler removed him from reporting to Albert Speer and he reported directly to Hitler over the last year and a half or two years of the war. Uh, Xavier Dorsch was in charge of the uh, large uh, German underground base program, construction program. After the war, he was scooped up by the United States Army. I got a couple, maybe three of the doc of his debriefing documents that were declassified. I assume that there was much more that is classified to this day. Uh, but under, he was brought over to work for the United States military's underground plant program, which began right after World War II. In other words, the United States went into Nazi Germany and territories controlled by Nazi Germany in the closing months of, of the war and in the months after the conclusion of the war and discovered all of these underground bases, factories, tunnels, systems that the Nazis had constructed. And immediately understood that they would have to have the same thing, but even bigger. And who 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 would manage that for them, uh, administer that construction program for them? Well, it turned out to be Xavier Dorsch. They arrested him and put him in military custody. He was he was the guy in the 1940s for underground base construction. And then there was also uh, the mind control aspect of what the Nazis were doing. Uh, Project Paperclip brought over also uh, Nazi psychiatrists and mind control specialists. I talked with Fletcher Prouty uh, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, about this. He was he was the liaison officer during uh, the Cold War period after World War II for many years, liaising between the CIA and the uh, command structure in the Pentagon, Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he was uh, in charge of running this rat line into the United States, bringing the Nazis over. He administered that at a high level. He told me, you know, I asked him about that. He said, well, you know, um, you know, Richard, when we brought the Nazi psychiatrist over, at first, we didn't understand how crazy they were. What he was telling me reading between the lines is that the mind control program, which was folded into the CIA in the 1950s, and they would have been working in the CIA or under the CIA's umbrella, you know, projects like MKUltra and Project Monarch are two of the publicly known ones. I'm assuming there must be others. But his admission to me that, you know, Richard, when we brought the um, the, the Nazi uh, psychiatrist over, we didn't fully understand how crazy they were. He was telling me that the mind control technology, it was and it is mind bending. And 
I believe you must know this based from some of your interviews. It's oh, yeah. it's in play today on a large level. Um, Hollywood is part of that mind control program with its predictive programming and and its um, <clears throat> and its ties to occult occult organizations, among which are the CIA. By the way, has been for a long time. Speaking of Hollywood, you know. Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors. You know, his father was an admiral in the United States Navy and was commanding a aircraft carrier battle group off the coast of Vietnam, as, even as Jim Morrison was a counterculture figure for hippies and the peace movement during the 1960s. It's all intertwined, David, in ways you would never anticipate. Laurel Canyon out at on the outskirts of um, Los Angeles and so forth. I want to mention another thing. Have you ever interviewed Lou Baldin? I have not. Well, I would recommend him to you if you can find him. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, look him up. He's written a series of books about UFOs and extraterrestrials. Now, I've read a couple of them, and he writes them as if as if in the first person, right? As if it were actually he who was going around with extraterrestrials and taking rides in UFOs. I'm presuming that maybe he he has or does um, and is presenting certain material publicly in a, a fictional, uh, with a fictional veneer. You know, I, um, I've read these books with great interest because they um, resonate with things that I've been told and things that I have observed. One of his books is entitled A Day with an Extraterrestrial, in which he accounts uh, being uh, met unexpectedly by a human appearing extraterrestrial in a park here on Earth. And the extraterrestrial more or less elbows him onto a UFO that's hovering nearby in the trees and the brush off the trail in, in a park here on Earth. And, and he goes with this extraterrestrial, uh, first of all, to a huge, huge, extremely ancient space station orbiting the sun. He says it's 10 million miles from Earth, and it was built just millions of years ago. It's a very high-tech facility, very huge, extremely ancient, orbiting the sun. He was taken there and found that there were thousands of other uh, UFO-type vehicles that were docked to this place, which was just monstrous. It's miles, miles long. And he was taken inside and had adventures there. And then he was taken from that huge, huge space station orbiting the sun, uh, about 10 million miles from Earth is what he was told. He was taken via another large, larger craft out to Uranus, an outer solar, solar system, and was shocked to find that there was a resonant 
a population of humanoid beings on Uranus. Not Earth humans exactly, similar, similar to terrestrial humans, but not exactly like us. But they were a native indigenous humanoid population on Uranus. He was surprised to find that, and then he was taken uh, unexpectedly. He was uh, detected by the resident uh, android police force and found not to be a resident of Uranus and was taken via high-speed elevator deep down to a deeper level of Uranus where he discovered there was a, a resident human population from Earth. And in his limited exchanges with those beings, those terrestrial human beings with whom he spoke English, he was told there was a supply ship from Earth twice, twice a week, bringing them supplies, and that all of them had been bought, brought there uh, by extraterrestrials for reasons unknown. And that's the essence of that book. Then he was returned to Earth ultimately by the same extraterrestrial being that had uh, taken him from Earth from the park earlier that day. All of this transpired within 24 hours, Earth time. I read that book and it resonates with me. The, the rumors about uh, a parallel space program have been around for a long time. And by the way, I believe that the modern parallel space program the real space program began in the early 1950s or perhaps before, even in the Nazi era. Um, and that's fa that's fascinating because, again, people maybe would look at the research on, say, deep underground military bases and the underground tunnels and all of that and not realize that it's connected to what we've all heard about as the secret space program, if all of this ends up being true, right? I think it's all tied together. I think humans, humans, uh, this business of of um, capturing humans and enslaving them and taking them elsewhere, including off planet, I think it's been going on at least for decades, perhaps for millions of years. Uh, you know, when I was, um, and he, let me finish with Lou Baldin. He, sure. he has another book entitled In League with a UFO which I'll cut to the chase, basically has to do with a secretive uh, terrestrial human um, compartmentalized project that has to do with, with aliens and uh, ETs and with extraterrestrial technology, uh, UFO type technology. And there again, it, the, he writes it in such a manner uh, that he is um, presenting that this is factually true. I have detected this more than once myself without, however, being a member of such a group as far as I know. Um, I know that there are GO teams that have to do with UFOs. I used to work for a, a retired military officer who, who had a PhD in one of the STEM disciplines and earned PhD. I mean, he, he was a real um, nuts and bolts scientist. He was on one of the Project Blue Book GO teams back in the like 1950s, 1960s. 
and they would get to, they always had to be ready to go and they would get the call and they would be taken out by you know military shuttle uh, they would fly out wherever it was the area would be cordoned off if they were ets or crashed or captured ufo type uh aircraft or spacecraft or anything of that nature and there would be like biologists uh medical personnel uh, electronic engineers electrical engineers chemists metallurgists physicists uh, aerospace uh, technicians you know across the board of the sciences both biological and hard sciences and engineering and um, they would just swarm the site and <clears throat> his job had to do with the physical characteristics of the of the craft and he would have all kinds of instrumentations he would make notes recordings film take samples or take readings with various types of instruments that kind of thing and his colleagues and other scientific disciplines would be doing uh their thing and all under very very heavy uh military guard he told me that during his years in project blue book they had they had at least three types of captured or recovered ufo craft at wright patterson air force base in ohio and <clears throat> at the dark of the moon there were military test pilots that had learned enough about these things to fly them to an extent and they would open the, the hangar doors and fly them right out but it only on really dark nights you see they had one that was a large sphere i think he said it was like maybe 90 90 feet in diameter they had another one that was like a, a more classic style flying saucer which was pretty large and then they had one that was more the style and size of a of a 1950 style automobile with the fins on the back and the lights and everything he said that it, it somewhat resembled those old Studebaker automobiles, if you've ever seen them. Um, there are very few of them left anymore. And <clears throat> so these GO teams really exist. Uh, and they'll go out after Sasquatches, ancient uh, technology, uh, UFO technolo technology, any type of interdimensional or extraterrestrial activity. They go out. I mean, they're sent out quickly with great stealth. So when you see a program like the X-Files, there you go with Hollywood predictive programming, actually telling you what's going on with a fictional veneer, veneer so that there is a degree of plausible deniability. But these, these programs do exist. And I've run up against them. Now, this business of having um, you know, secretive groups where these um, researchers or clandestine operatives work together in a highly strange manner, uh, interfacing with extraterrestrials and, and extraterrestrial technology. They're chipped, they're brain chipped. Uh, you know, Elon Musk, Elon Musk with his Neuralink technology, listen, he says he's in human trials now. No, this this technology has been developed years 
ago, decades ago, and, and is widely used by intelligence. Doesn't that happen to a lot of technology where we get sort of the later, the version that they approve for the public, but they're already, some people have estimated 50 to 100 well, years the, advanced. The brain, the, the brain chip technology is well advanced. Um, it's been going on for a long time. And, you know, in terms of not, not only linking one human brain to another, but interlinking with vast computer or digital uh, technologies, uh, digital, digital brains, if you will, digital awarenesses. I'll just give you one example. Um, Bill, Bill Hamilton told me, oh, it's been over 20 years now, that he, he Bill Hamilton's career was spent as a very high-level computer programmer. Bill is a master computer programmer, and on one of his gigs, uh, he was working in New Mexico, uh, or Arizona, I forget which, in the Southwest at any rate, and one of his colleagues was a, a recently retired Army officer who was also a high-level computer programmer. And the Army officer told him, being stationed at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, and of having traveled via high-speed underground tube train to work with an AI intelligence called Irene, named Irene. Irene was in a secure underground facility uh, somewhere in the Southwest United States and was aware, self-aware, awake. And part of his um, part of his duty was to go out and interface with Irene, to communicate with Irene not so much to program Irene as to, I don't know, enculturate Irene or socialize Irene. So this business of AI has been around for a quarter of a century or more, maybe for a lot more time than that. So if the whole thing of Elon Musk is, is about to develop a brain leak to connect with, with AI or with a supercomputer, Nonsense. That's already been done a long time ago. That's just propaganda for the Musk, for the masses. Elon Musk is just a front man. That's all. By the way, Elon Musk also has an underground tunnel boring pro program about which we hear virtually nothing. Only that, you know, several years ago, it was in the news that Elon Musk was buying tunnel boring machines and was going to be developing high-speed underground um, transit systems. And after that, we've heard virtually nothing. Elon Musk, Elon Musk is into all of this up to his eyebrows, but as is a front, he's a front man. Now, the other part of this, Lou Baldin is interesting enough, and I believe there's, there is a huge kernel of truth in the book, books that Lou Baldin has written. Um, there's another, guy out on the internet named Metallic Man, and he has a, a website, Metallic Man, M-E-T-A-L-L-I-C-M-A-N.com. <clears throat> Metallic Man purports to be an ex-espionage agency in the United States military industrial complex. 
<clears throat> he was in, according to him, in aviator school, Naval Aviator School in Florida, when he was tapped into a super secret, highly compartmentalized program interfacing with UFOs and extraterrestrials. And that as part of this program, he and the other men in it have been brain chipped. They've been brain chipped and they interact, of course, with each other, but also with ETs and with uh, ET extraterrestrial technology. This is very similar to the scenario that Lou Baldin lays out as fiction in his book In League with a UFO. It's almost, it almost corresponds 100% as a matter of fact. Now, yes it is, is it not? Uh, and I believe that both of them are probably telling the truth or at least telling a lot of truth, let's put it that way. Metallic Man's website is voluminous. You can start reading on one end and three weeks later you'll still be reading. I mean, it's it's a lot of stuff. Uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of material to to um, move through. I believe that all of this is going on and more, and I believe I've detected some of these uh, some of these groups. I don't think I'm in any of them. However, I believe that any individual who is highly intuitive and perceptive and aware of what's happening on this planet, either through direct observation or or keen listening or extensive reading or personal experience uh, with a wide variety of realities, sub-realities and super-realities will stumble across these groups. I don't think it could be any other way. Now, exactly what they're doing and why, I can't tell you, and they will not tell you. Well, it's because they've got to keep the keep the ball rolling, and there's clearly something way bigger behind all of it. And that's, I'm not sure if you've heard, Richard, of uh, you were familiar with Charles Fort, the of course, yeah, he. Course. I'm sure you're aware of the statement. I wanted to just quickly read because it's it's beneficial for the listeners. I've read it before, but it's very, it may this is what made me think twice about everything I thought I knew and got me into this research. And I thought it was really interesting as you've been breaking this down, we've talked about the criminal governments, the deep state, the underground world, the secret space program, the possible extraterrestrial involvement and all these different things. But when you put it all together, I think Charles Fort sums it up and he says, I think we're property. I should say that we belong to something. And that once upon this, once upon a time, this earth was a no man's land that other worlds explored and colonized here and fought amongst themselves for possession, but that now it's owned by something, that something owns this earth, all others warned off. Would we, if we could, educate sophistic and sophisticate pigs, geese, and cattle? First they find out that they are owned, and then they find out the whyness of it. And then he says, I suspect that after all, we're useful, that among contesting claimants, adjustment has occurred or that something now has a legal right to us by force or by having paid out analogs of beads for us to former more primitive owners of us. And that all of this has been known perhaps for ages to certain ones upon this earth, a cult or order, he says, 
members of which function like bellwethers to the rest of us, or as superior slaves or overseers, directing us in accordance with instructions received from somewhere else in our mysterious usefulness. <laughs> what do you think about that statement? Well, I can't disagree. Uh, everyone that I know has one or more uh, identifying identifying numbers from corresponding government agencies, whether national or international or global. The, I mean, I'm presuming you may have a driver's license for a motor vehicle. You may have a, a citizen's identification card from your province or national government. You may have, if you're in the military, a military identifying number. Uh, you may have, if you travel internationally, a passport number. Uh, if you're involved in some kind of medical or social security type of system, you may have an identifying card with a social security or hospital hospitalization uh, administration number, that type of thing. So numbers are ubiquitous, uh, identification numbers. And now with the advent of digital technology and chipping, it may be that um, right down to the DNA, people may be identified. In fact, it, it would be possible to insert an identification code into the genetic code. Oh, yeah, it's and that brings in the whole maritime admiralty, the legal system. Um, well, it brings in the whole notion of of generations of people being um, captured by by UFOs, extraterrestrials and UFOs saying, you know, well, we've been following your family for a long time, your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather, and your children will, will follow as well. If there's an identifier in the genetic code, then it would follow from one gener generation to another. It would be replicated at the time of sexual reproduction and in that way if the the responsible uh, ETs if they had the proper uh, DNA scanner shall we say would say oh beep beep yeah there's one of ours over there you know we'll fly over there 200 miles over there we'll pick him up after he goes to sleep tonight because they would be able to detect you from orbit Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible to think about. But I mean, like you said, when you put it all together, what other conclusion can we come to that something that is working in an anti-human, anti-planet capacity? I mean, look at the damage these major corporations do. Look at and yet they blame it all on us. You know, like there's there's something that operates here that is the word is alien. It's alien in the sense of, you know, even if people don't want to go to extraterrestrial level, whatever it is, is not us and it's not acting in our best interest. No, uh, some people go on and on about the Anunnaki, for example, and they may be part of the puzzle. Uh, I'm persuaded that uh, the satanic cults are a big part of this. Mm. And <clears throat> Satan being Satan, you know, in the Christian tra tradition, they say that 
Satan rebelled against God. Satan had great authority. It seems to me that reading the Christian scriptures that Satan may have been originally even more beloved by God than Jesus. Not just saying God doesn't not saying God doesn't love Jesus. Uh, God is immense love, among other things, just unimaginable love uh, beyond being the creator. But the creation, you know, is vast. Even what we can see of it, there's no end to it. And there be there may be more than this one universe. There may be trillions of universes, each of which contain contains trillions of galaxies. And each galaxy could containing billions or even in some cases trillions of star systems. So creation, even what we can see of it, is vast. Satan rebelled against God. Now, God had these angels and archangels, which I think we may presume were administrators and still are of the universe or universes. Very high level beings with vast awareness, vast consciousness, and vast capabilities, magical capabilities to, to manage and run oodles of galaxies, for example, at a high level. I think Satan, from what we know, was a very high level being in the service of God. Not God, but one of God's right-hand men, maybe God's primary right-hand men, with teeming teeming gazillions of angels under him. And Satan rebelled and fled from heaven with one third of angels. So this was a big deal, a really big deal. There was a schism in heaven. I presume that from what I have intuited, what I've seen, what I've read from my own visions, that Satan in cutting himself off from God, lost access to, uh, shall we call it, God juice, the energy that, that flows unceasingly from God that maintains all of us. I mean, we're having this conversation right now. We're talking and thinking about God and the universe, very large concepts. Where does that even come from? Well, ultimately from God. Where do we get the concept? Where do we get these ideas? Ultimately, from a higher, a higher level of awareness, it certainly doesn't come from a, a lower level of awareness. Well, Satan abandoned God and turned against God. In doing so, uh, lost God, lost access to God. In that instant, Satan be began a very entropic decline, a massively entropic decline, because once you cut yourself off from God, it's like pulling the plug. Where do you get your life energy from if you take a sword and sever the connection with God? Right. Well, so that means that Satan doesn't have a soul anymore. Maybe at one time he did, but he killed in, in severing the relationship with God. Satan severed the soul connection. So what we have, and that happened evidently a very long time ago, by human understanding of time. So then you have a vastly intelligent, beyond the power of the human mind to conceive, vastly intelligent, 
vastly powerful, uh, vastly capable intelligence, machine, mechanism, personality, but it doesn't have a soul because it severed its soul connection with God. So where's it going to get energy to keep it all going? Apparently it left with approximately one third of the creation. Well, it's going to have to siphon off energy from the beings and the consciousnesses and awarenesses, awarenesses in the domain that it stole along with a bootleg copy of the divine creative source code, it's going to have to get energy from somewhere. It can no longer get it directly from God. Imagine, imagine how huge that energy flow must have been, just cosmic. But that's cut off. So it's going to have to siphon energy from other beings that are captive in its rebel realm like human beings, for example, on Earth, and I'm assuming on trillions of other planets throughout the, the vast, vast realm that was stolen away, along with the source code. Now, over time, because, because in severing the connection with God, God is extropic. God is an endless fountain of all that is. I mean, just consciousness, energy, love, light, uh, whatever you can conceive of, just consciously pouring out of God like a torrent, like a cosmic Niagara Falls without end. That's extropic to the nth degree. But when you cut yourself off from that, immediately you become entropic to the nth degree. And you're spiraling down towards nothingness, towards terminal death, towards final ultimate lights out, never to be rekindled, unless you can get God juice from somewhere to keep it going. You can't go directly to God anymore because you've rebelled against him and turned against him and are fighting against him. So you go to other other creatures who retain the connection with God who have not rebelled against him. And I think that's the situation we find ourselves in. Robert, Robert Monroe, the father of the CI of the military espionage uh, complexes remote viewing program wrote in one of his books about louche about how human beings generate louche it's the energy we this, give yeah. off it's the energy we give off he also wrote in one of his books about uh, in one of his out of body excursions coming across a network of very large just huge um, pipes that were very ancient, just mind-bogglingly ancient. He didn't know how old, but very, very old, very large, very ancient. And there was some kind of substance or energy coursing through these pipes, flowing through these pipes. He could sense it. I believe what he sensed was the louche, the louche that's being siphoned off of Earth from the human population here and and from who knows how many, probably trillions of other planets throughout the endless galaxies. We don't, we don't even know the end of it. Most powerful telescopes built, built so far haven't found any end. Every time they get 
a better telescope. They detect billions of more galaxies. Imagine the energy coursing through the must be trillions of incarnated beings of all kinds throughout these galaxies and siphoning off their life energy. Because for an, at a not an industrial level, at a cosmic level, to keep it all running indirectly. By what ayahuasca has shown me, I've drunk ayahuasca many times, show me what I call as the machine, which is a which I perceive as being a vastly cold, calculating, ruthless, merciless, immensely intelligent, immensely self-aware um, entity, but lacking a soul, without a soul. So it needs I guess to kind of like on. the way the Borg is portrayed in Star Trek is similar, yeah. Very much. You know, we, we're given we're given bits of piece bits and pieces of this in movies and TV shows. And so where is it going to get energy to power up itself and keep keep all of this massive quantum computing program going to to keep all these galaxies and what what have you spinning and and uh, in motion, <clears throat> it needs to get that energy from from beings that still have the God connection. Interestingly, the first time I ever drank ayahuasca here in Ecuador, I asked it to show me reality. I asked it to show me what's in, most important for me to know, what's most real. And one of the things it showed me was uh, very real. I saw it directly. A long line of chairs, two chairs facing each other, extending to the horizon, just thousands of chairs under a low shed roof, a long, low shed roof, about eight or nine feet high, that also ran into the distance all the way to the horizon and out of view. And just under the roof of the shed was a piping network if you've ever been on a dairy farm and been in the milking parlor, when the farmer and his helpers, his farm hands come along, they attach suction, uh, a, a suction milker to the cow to suck the milk out of the cow's udder. And the milk goes overhead to a, a system of pike, piping that, that pipes the milk away and into a big tank in another room that's thousands of gallons. And then every week or so, a big stainless steel tanker truck comes and, and collects, you know, 5,000 gallons of milk from this farm. It goes down the road five miles more and collects more milk from another farm. And in that way, um, milk is collected from individual cows on, on an industrial level. We, what ayahuasca showed me is something and directly analogous to that. I saw men and women come in as if in a daze, as if they were sleepwalking. They sat down in these chairs face to face, women on one side, men on the other, in a, a double line extending to the horizon. There were flexible tubes that then extended down from overhead with a big suction cup at the end of the tube. The suction cup Fitted, fit on the top of the head on the crown chakra, and then 
there was a siphoning off of energy from each person up to the flexible tube to the tubing network overhead and then that i could see all of that whatever it was was siphoned off down to the piping network just at high speed that went to the horizon it was being the in other words humanity we are being milked of our louche i presume um and what is the what is our louche well some people take cocaine and they really get high on that they produce louche uh, some people like cotton candy, others like popcorn. Other people like to watch telenovelas. Uh, sex of all kinds is a very popular activity on planet Earth. Uh, good sex, bad sex, uh, sex you don't even want to think about because it's so depraved. Um, all of that generates loose, you see, a certain energetic discharge from the human organism. Some people, master an instrument, trumpet, clarinet, whatever, piccolo, trombone, and they play jazz or classical music at a high level after practicing for years and years. Well, that produces also a certain kind of louche, don't you know, that can be siphoned off, musical louche, um, very refined musical louche. And then some people like contact sports, slamming another people at high speed, breaking bones, giving concussions, other people like to watch that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of this produces loose wars. Wars produce suffering, panic, terror. You name it. Uh, some people are psychopaths and they really enjoy killing. And, and they go into uh, criminal organizations as hit men or they join a military organization and go into combat in the front lines because they really like to kill people. Well, and look at the look what we just went through the last three years with this whole pandemic fiasco with the amount oh, of man, fear that was generated. How lots much loose do you think they were able to pull off it during that period of time? Well, billions and billions of, of person units of loose for, for three years. Uh, now, all of this is in line with what Charles Fort observed and wrote. Yep. Uh, it's, it also corresponds with what um, Robert Monroe talked about and wrote about and alleged to have observed in his out-of-body adventures. And I believe him. I believe Charles Fort. And I think that this is a prison planet. It's a, a farm planet. It's a planet of great suffering, and we don't even know 1% of it because we're kept kept in such great ignorance. One of the reasons that people are so dumb and stupid is that clearly this iteration of humanoids or hominids on this planet has been genetically dumbed down to be slaves, to be very stupid slaves, and to be docile and very amiable slaves just to go along to get along no matter what it is line up and get a jab, jab without questioning what it is line up and get the jab by the billions right with no curiosity no inquiry into it simply accepting whatever the per person in medical scrubs told you 
And that's why we are continually enslaved is because in, as you're saying, we've probably been bred and trained and mind controlled to be that. But what I've always tried to think of it, to put a little silver lining on it is that we still do have that connection to God. We still do have that direct connection that in fact, I believe we're envied for having. And that power is far greater and more powerful. If you choose, if you make the conscious choice to truly connect with it, it's far more powerful than any of this demonic uh, stuff that's going on. You have, you have to choose. I, I think it's interesting that our alleged primitive ancestors or predecessors, such as the Neanderthals, uh, do you know the Neanderthals had a brain that was 25% larger than modern humans' brains? Yeah, I've heard something to that effect, yeah. And then the Cro-Magnons, I believe the Cro-Magnon brain was something on the order of 30 or 40% larger than modern humans' brains. So the Cro-Magnons were supposed to have died out about 100,000 years ago or 70,000 years ago, but they had far larger brains than we do. The Neanderthals allegedly died out totally about 300,000 years ago. They also had much larger brains than we do. So I don't believe actually that they were more primitive than us. I believe that they were far more advanced than us and that we've been lied to about prehistory. I think the the iterations, the hominids, if you will, or homonyms or humanoids that preceded us, other species of homo were far more intelligent than us and probably had a higher technology. Now, in recent years, we've, we've been hearing about the Denisovans. Correct me if I got the pronunciation wrong. Um, the Denisovans, I recently saw a picture of a Denisovan molar compared to a uh, Homo sapiens molar. It was huge. I'm thinking those people must have been 10 or 15 feet tall. They were a predecessor human species. I believe that in the past, human species on this planet, and not that long ago, uh, like the Denisovans, the the Cro-Magnons, and and even the Neanderthals, were far more intelligent than, than us, far more capable, but that the human species or the human lines on this planet have been genetically tampered with, perhaps the Anunnaki or, or some other species to produce a slave race to be farmed, to be culled, to be milked for louche, to be used for uh, genetic material. You, you see, when you dumb us down, you, you don't give us access, you prevent us from having access to our complete genetic code. And I believe that thousands, tens and hundreds of thousands of years ago, that we had conscious access to large stretches of our genetic code that have now been blocked off from our conscious awareness. I believe the same. I, you read the ancient literature, like from the Popol Vuh 
or from you can find discussions of this in the book of Enoch or the Old Testament or other ancient texts, you know, coming from India, where they talk about advanced beings that were here before us. And um, I, I also, do you remember the great Lloyd Pye before he passed? Sadly, yes, I never met him, but I know a little bit about his work. Right, right. And I, I always had a great respect for it because he tried to come at this subject from a very scientific perspective. He found some very mysterious skulls that didn't match the human record um, and also didn't match identically with what they were calling the homo, um, I guess, the, the Neanderthal record either. So it seemed to him that this, he called it the star child skull. But beyond yes. that, he also did a book talking about intervention theory where he was trying to explain scientifically what you've spoken about here and what was in the ancient literature, which is that humanity at a certain point was interfered with by these beings that were more advanced, the scientific race that had come and actually genetically manipulated and altered the natural flow of the human species. And that um, he, he identified there's, there were many differences between um, the Neanderthals, uh, other primate species and humans, he found that we had 46 chromosomes versus the 48, and that those two additional chromosomes were actually fused together, which you didn't see in any other species, that we had over 4,000 genetic uh, deficiencies, which fly in the face of Darwinian evolution when it comes to humanity, because why wouldn't we be eliminated by nature if we had that many deficiencies, whereas the average primate only has maybe a couple hundred? Um, and this produces things like Down syndrome and some of these other things. And then on and on, like he went through 12 anomalies with human beings that make us stand out like a sore thumb from everything else. And yet we have this supposedly higher intelligence capacity, yet here we are <laughs> being ruled like slaves. And so it's quite an interesting theory. And uh, I just wanted to point out Lloyd Pye had, had really dove in deep on that one. Yes. And... Uh, I, w I would mention uh, Brian Furster, who lives in Peru. Right, I, don't, yes. I don't know if you've ever interviewed him. I have. Yeah, I've met Brian. He's great. Yeah. Yeah, Brian um, has, has played a huge role in exposing the highly advanced ancient civilization here in South America. We, we really know next to nothing about who built these many ancient monuments in South America, which defy understanding in many cases, and also the race of, of very tall, very large-headed, red-haired uh, people who lived in Peru and perhaps in other areas of South America in past millennia, who do not have normal uh, Homo sapiens DNA they uh, have some important differences. They apparently have a genetic link from maybe a couple thousand years ago to the area uh, around the Black Sea and the Caucasus Mountains in southern Russia. And beyond that, it's hard to say who they were or where they came from or exactly why they were here. Well, and we were told, you know, there were giants on the earth in those days, you know, it's right in the Bible and there's other, there's, it's hard to always know what images 
you can see about <coughs> giant skeletons and things like that. But I do believe that um, there's been great work done on it to show that they have found abnormally sized skeletons in different parts of the world. I remember even uh, Dr. Carmen Bolter, who did The Pyramid Code on Netflix. She was a professor at Calgary University, and I, I knew her well. And she had said that I think it was in Bolivia. She knew somebody there who had just a farmer that had dug up a skeleton that was like 14 feet tall. And it was an ancient dig. And immediately they basically built an entire secure structure around the dig. And nobody's ever heard of it since. And there's been probably many of those instances where they find things like the Smithsonian Institute or whatever that's all connected into, you know, you know who. And they cover a lot of this kind of stuff up. You know, David Hatcher Childress also has done a lot of work talking about that. So our history is a mystery. Yes. Well, I can tell you that um, the Sasquatch beings are seen in, in many countries around the world, not only in the United States and Canada. There, there, there are today other species of bipedal large bipedal primates on the earth besides homo sapiens. Uh, the Sasquatch is being one of those species. Species, They are seen by many people almost exclusively in uh, remote, rural, or even in semi-rural areas. They do not come into town. They don't go into the cities. Uh, they're mostly nocturnal, but they're real. They're also seen in Ecuador. Oh, really? My my recently deceased friend, Greg Caton, who died in December of 2021, lived, built a house in a very beautiful, uh, isolated mountain valley in southern Ecuador. And I had known that uh, Sasquatches or seen not far from in the mountains, not far from where he lived. So in the second half of 2021, I needled him a little bit and said, uh, I proposed a book project to him that we should write a, a book about Sasquatch. And he said, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you should mention that because um, Sasquatches come right into the valley where I live. My, my neighbors tell me about them all the time. And I knew that, but I just wanted to yank his chain a little bit. I'd been to visit him as where he lived, of course, and uh, I was familiar with some of the stories. I took a look around the valley and I just said to myself, oh, yeah, they come through here. No doubt about it. But he was semi oblivious to it, not oblivious enough that he wasn't open to the stories that his neighbors told him but oblivious enough that he hadn't seen one, one, or at least his conscious mind did not permit him to remember that he had seen them. I'm persuaded, persuaded that he did see them and just didn't consciously register it. But they're here in Ecuador, uh, in the Andes, and I presume they're probably all the way down into Chile, because once you get down into southern Chile, uh, the landscape is heavily forested. Uh, you just have mile after mile of forested mountains, which is prime Sasquatch territory. And even on the other side of, of the uh, frontier in Argentina, 
going all the way down to the Tierra de Fuego. You know, when the Spanish explorers first came and rounded the Cape uh, in that region uh, back in, uh, it would have been probably 1500s, they reported seeing large, large giants, giant people dressed in animal skins that would come right down to the coast and they saw them from their ships. I'm guessing they saw Sasquatches. For people who never saw uh, a bipedal primate 10 or 15 feet tall with long shaggy hair, it would have looked like giants wearing animal skins. But by the time, uh, you know, this region got settled, the South American region got settled in, in the um, following centuries, um, the stories of these beings disappeared, but they're still here. And at least in Ecuador, um, people do see them. The government says they don't exist. The government biologists and the government park service says, oh, there's nothing like that in Ecuador. If there were, we'd know, but they don't exist. And still people see them. So this is a response of governments, whether in South America, North America, Canada, the United States. You, you try to get real information out of a government agency on almost anything, and it's difficult. And if it's on something like the reality of Sasquatch, you know, they, they close ranks and they shut up. Yeah, on so many things. And I, I, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so I'm out in British Columbia uh, on the island here. And I probably every second car that I see has a Sasquatch picture on it. Like everybody up here, there's a lot of sightings. There's libraries dedicated to it. It's a, big, it's a pretty popular subject here. But, you know, the, the mainstream still looks at it as, oh, that's just a, you know, it's just a big myth or whatever. But, I mean, how do we know? I mean, wasn't it, it was very recently like only the last 80 years or 100 years that we even identified panda bears because they live so thick in the fort. Like nobody ever, it was just, they were myth and legend until suddenly they were officially discovered. But it was rather recently, if I'm not mistaken, that they were discovered and now officially recognized as a member of, uh, of, of the bear family, I guess. And so I always tell that to people to say when they go, oh, we, it, they couldn't be. It's like, well, when you've got countless um countless reports coming from all over the world over different periods of time in history, even as you're bringing up going back to when the Spanish came in, you got to start going, well, where there's smoke, there's got to be fire. There's got to be something to it. And well, there's just, there's not just smoke. Uh, you know, you have the, the Patterson Gimlin film from the 1960s, for example, uh, of the so-called female Sasquatch Patty. And mm -hmm. That's that's a genuine film, analog uh, 16 uh, millimeter film. She was real for whatever reason, permitted herself to be caught on camera exiting the scene. And there are many like her. Many people see them all the time. You have to interview your fellow British Columbian from How to Hunt. He's got perhaps the most popular Sasquatch channel on YouTube, How to Hunt. Uh, okay, I'll, send, yeah. I'll send you his email address and his name after the show. Oh, please do, uh, yeah. Well, he's an outdoorsman. He's a he's a hunter and a fisherman. 
native Canadian. He spends most of his time just out alone with his fishing reel or his snowshoes or his his uh, his hunting rifle just out away for days or weeks on end just in the wilds of British Columbia. You know, once you get out of places like Vancouver, man, the the population per square mile in backcountry British Columbia is slim to none. There are very few human beings that live year round out in the wilds in British Columbia. That's right. Which means it's prime Sasquatch territory. Oh, I believe it, man. There's endless mountain ranges running for hundreds of miles, forests, rivers, lakes, streams, uh, seashore. Uh, they, they swim, you know, Sasquatches are expert swimmers. It's nothing for them to, you know, two or three, four or five miles of open water to go from one island to another, from the mainland to the to Vancouver Island. They, they'll just swim right along. And if it's at night, who is there to see them? Okay, it's a good point. I mean, hey, if we're if if this is for people that might be skeptical of this, and I mean, you just got to get into the subject. It's been around for so long, and as you said, there's so many people that have done work on it. But just thinking about these, all this stuff we've been talking about here, it's okay to question your reality. It's okay to question what you've been told, and especially when you have actual evidence of cover-ups happening. And if they've covered up even one thing. If even one of the elements that we've spoken about today turns out to be true, what does that say about what else could also be true? And all it takes is somebody, as you said, Richard, with an intelligent mind, an open mind, an open heart that wants to know the truth. The truth is out there. You can find it. And there's certain things we're not going to know yet, but there's a lot that we do know and there's a lot we can know. And that's why I'm so glad you've documented to your best on your blog, in your books, and um, that way we can at least look at it and try to get to the bottom of what's really going on on this planet. And then we get to the work of seeing, is there anything we can do about it? Or maybe if we can't do anything about the whole picture, what can we do in our personal lives to keep that uh, spirit alive, to keep freedom alive, and to try to keep the truth alive, you know? That's correct. You know, I uh, just following up with the Sasquatch theme a little bit, years ago, I was a a salt miner and working for Morton Salt in their mine down on the southern Louisiana on the Gulf Coast, coast Gulf of Mexico coast. And the salt mines in southern Louisiana, many of them are what are called salt domes, which are small islands which lie just offshore from the Louisiana coast in the marshlands and because the dog the the salt straight up push up from under deep underground under tremendous uh geological force and they create small islands and over time of course the islands the islands uh become forested with vegetation vines lots of trees uh with a natural landscape right so one night, just before my shift started, I was sitting in the employee break room and my coworker came busting in. He said, 
hey dude, you'll never believe what I just saw. He was a Cajun guy. You'll never believe what I just saw. I said, what? He said, I, as I was crossing the causeway from the mainland and you, you drive for miles out to the salt marshes on a causeway, on a two-way two -way, uh, lane, two-way, two two-lane highway. You go out there on the two-lane road and, and then you go up a slight rise as you come up onto the island. And he said, as, just as I was coming off, off the causeway and up onto the island, there was some kind of creature that crossed the road right in front of me. I saw it real clearly in my headlights. I said, what was it? He said, well, it looked like about five or six feet tall. It was running on two legs. It had two arms. It ran out of the trees on the left side of the road and crossed the road in just a few strides right in front of me and then swung up into the trees on the other side with its arms. I asked him a little bit more about it. He said it was, wasn't a human. It was covered with hair, but it was upright. It was bipedal. It was running, and it swung, but it swung up into the trees like a monkey on the other side, and he lost sight of it. Well, that would fit the description perfectly well of a juvenile Sasquatch. You know, not a 10 or 15 footer like a a big, big um, alpha male Sasquatch that weighs 800 pounds, 1,000 pounds, and is 13 or 14 feet tall. And people do see them, by the way. But it would suit a young, you know, like six or seven-year-old Sasquatch, eight, nine-year-old, who was um, in adolescence or approaching adolescence, who would be, that would be thinner, more wiry, um, but would be bipedal. And by the way, there are a fair number of reports of Sasquatch sightings of them brachiating, going up in the trees. Evidently, one reason a lot of people don't see them is because they're largely nocturnal, number one, and most people are largely not nocturnal. And number two, they spend a lot, spend a lot of time, especially the younger ones, up in the trees. Most people when they're work, walking in the in the woods are not looking 80, 80 feet up in a huge uh, beech tree or pine tree or or oak tree or, or ash tree. They're looking at the ground. You know, their vision is mostly from five or six feet and down in a hor horizontal direction. So so human behavior and Sasquatch behavior coincides such that even when humans are in the, in the woods, most of the time they won't see Sasquatches, but Sasquatches will see them and avoid them. Interesting, as you're telling that story, um, living out here, there's a tale about the mountain lions, because on the island, British Columbia here, they say it has the biggest concentration of mountain lions in the world. And they'll say that you could live your whole life on the island and not even see a single mountain lion. Yet, if you even visit the island for the weekend, guaranteed that a mountain lion has seen you. So if that's true about mountain lions and most people don't even get to see them, uh, you know, if you have a much more intelligent primate like that, 
it lives in sort of the heart of darkness of nature and doesn't really interface with humans and stays away. Uh, you know, it, it brings it into more of a possible state. They're out there. Most people don't see them. I, I know a lot of people say, well, I've never seen a Sasquatch, right? And most people live their life in a city. How many Sasquatches are you going to see in the city? None. Right. And when they're they not going to see much in the city. And when they in the when they go out in the wild to fish, or to hunt, or just to hike, what does the aver average person do? Hey, Fred, look over here! Look over here! I found a rabbit, right? Or stepping on every dead branch on the trail. Crunch, crack, crunch, crack. The bushcraft of the average modern human being is next to zero. Exactly. Stealth, the, the stealth factor of the average modern human out in the woods and the bushes, fields and the streams is next to zero. How hard is it to avoid a bunch of people that are sh shouting, hey, I found a meadowlark nest. Oh, look, hey, Bill, there's a snake over there. Am I, am I, am I telling the truth? Yes, you are. It's How so hard is it to detect the presence of such creatures in your territory and avoid them? You just quietly walk 100 yards the other way and they will never see you. Most people are concerned with um, creating those Instagram stories or whatever and getting the or video selfies, footage of where yeah. they're at. Yeah, uh, climb up in a tree and take a selfie up in a tree or, or, or stand on a rock in a stream and shouting to everyone with an earshot, hey, hey, look at this. Yeah, I, I should go over on that rock and take another selfie. So, so no, most people, even when they go out in nature, are never going to see a Sasquatch. But any Sasquatches that are within a mile are going to see them and hear them and smell them and avoid them. And they are wise to do so. <laughs> or or well, if they're out hunting, they're out hunting deer or squirrels or whatever. Guess what? Bang, 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 bang. How hard is that to hear from three miles away? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's that's an endless subject. It's so fascinating. I love that subject as well. And Richard, man, you've brought up so much amazing information here for people to consider. We're getting short on on time here, so I just wondered if you could maybe just leave us with a sort of summation of what we've talked about today and and let us know are you planning on doing any more books or you're just going to be working on your blog and well, maybe I'm just blogging, give us a little I'm yeah, blogging for now you know the book industry is dying on the vine uh, fewer and fewer people are reading books uh, amazon which is the largest bookseller at least in I, I believe in europe and the united states and canada is really cutting back their sales are down uh, they're they're firing people left and right, sh even shutting down warehouses. So the book industry, as we have known it during the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century, is is withering away. So even were I to read a book, I'm not sure it would be to write a book. I'm not sure how uh, commercially successful it would be. And I I got to make some money for my time. I, I have to tell you the truth. Um, yeah, but if I did write another book, what would be the topic? I don't know. Maybe Sasquatch, maybe um, 
ancient ruins in, in South America, that type of thing. Uh, I, I just couldn't, couldn't say. My other books just happened out of the blue, clear blue sky. So if I do write another book, I suspect it would be the same, the same, but what the theme would be uh, as of this minute, I have no clue. Well, I, I hope you continue to write and continue to do work and you're more than welcome back on this podcast anytime. And if you, even if you just want to do a quick update here or there, and maybe just remind people where they can go and purchase your books, check out your blog. And also if there's any way that if they could donate to your research or, or help you out in any way yes. where they can do all that. My blog site is event horizon chronicle.blogspot.com. That's event horizon chronicle blogspot.com and my books can be ordered right from the from my blog uh, in the right hand sidebar my email address is also on my blog uh, please email if you would like to donate I gratefully accept don donations and do need them so email me and, and I will tell you how you can donate to me Excellent. And I'll, again, I'll include all that in the description for everybody listening. And um, Dr. Souter, I just want to thank you for doing this work as long as you have. The books are amazing and really enjoyed this conversation. I'm going to try to get it out as far and wide as possible. And uh, I do hope that we can eventually get another conversation down the road because I have a feeling you and I could talk for hours on so many different subjects. And I just want to thank you again. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. My pleasure. You take care. We'll stay in touch, Richard, and uh, you have a great day and hopefully we can touch again soon. Okay. Good deal. All right. Cheers.